Welcome to the Real Estate Espresso Podcast, your morning shot of what's new in the world of real estate investing. I'm your host, Victor Manash. This is the weekend edition where we interview notable people from the world of real estate investing. Today is no exception. We have a great guest all the way from Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. Welcome to the show, Matt Pestronk. Thank you for having me, Victor. Well, you're based in Philly. It's a community that's near and dear to my heart. We've done a ton of development in the Philadelphia market over the last decade. And I'm sure we're going to talk about that. But before we do, maybe why don't you give a little bit of your backstory and how you got to this point in your journey? Sure. So I started my real estate career doing um, office building leasing. And then I really got to wanted to understand how people came to own buildings. And then once I came to understand that, I decided that's what I wanted to do was to own real estate, not office buildings, but I liked apartment buildings more because um, there was lower risk and you could make still make money by renovating or developing them. So my brother and I started the business in 2006. I was also a commercial mortgage broker before we started the business. And that gave me a background in finance. So I was pretty familiar with operating and financing real estate from what I'd been doing before we started the business. So we started doing small building renovations in Philadelphia about 17 years ago, and then now moving to, in the intervening period, doing very large $500 million plus uh, multi-phase projects, ground up and adaptive reuse along the East Coast primarily. I love that. What I love about the Philadelphia market it's one of these markets that's almost block by block. And we pioneered a strategy. We called it buy on the line, move the line, where on one side of the line, you can have a hot gentrified neighborhood. And on the other side, you're in the hood. And that line can creep one block a year, two blocks a year, as long as you are putting sufficient scale behind that investment. Did you approach it that way? Or did you simply look for the Swiss cheese that's all over the Philadelphia market? How did you approach it? Earlier in our career, we definitely followed a move the line, develop in the path, develop be be the path of development. Yeah. But then ultimately, we found that as the market peaked, maybe five or six years ago, there were really limited opportunities available in areas that we didn't think were a little bit too pioneering. So we pivoted to doing ground up in more, as you say, Swiss cheese locations. Now today, we're really focused on something I think pretty unique, which is core main and main urban locations, office building redevelopment, because the office market is obviously in a state of distress today, which you know didn't exist has not existed for over a decade. So in Washington, DC, Philadelphia, potentially a few other cities on the East Coast, Boston, New York, if they get their zoning together, we're going to be doing mostly conversions and teardowns of office in CBDs for the next couple of years. One of the challenges, and we do some of that as well, one of the challenges, of course, with office buildings has to do with the form factor of the building. If the floor plate is too large, if there's too much area in the core and not enough on the perimeter, then that building probably is not a candidate for conversion because you can't put bedrooms in the core. There's only so much you can put in the core. So if the building is, say, 200 by 200 square, not a chance that's going to get redeveloped. But if it's, say, 80 by 200, now you've got a reasonable shot at it. What kind of limitations have you run into? Have you found good assets to convert? Sure. So there's a lot of talk around the kinds of buildings that don't work. We just don't talk about the ones that don't work. They're just land, trade for land value. Often that's much less than what's owed. Those types of buildings aren't transacting now. I'd say 
10% of all the office buildings that are no longer viable, which is about 30% of the stock in total. So 10% of 30% is 3%. 3% of all the office buildings in the United States uh, work as viable conversion candidates that are available to be converted or 10% of what's available to be converted. No, we're buying a building right now with a plan to tear it down. It's just the, the core is too deep, to your point. Yeah, that mirrors what we see as well. In fact, we're looking at two projects right now, a central business district type, type project, large buildings. The biggest, the other challenge that we see with a lot of these conversions is, of course, they're not plumbed. If you were to do a building for residential, you would bury sleeves in the concrete as part of the forming structure for all of your plumbing. Now you're facing the prospect of having to drill two, 3,000 holes through concrete slab and hope you don't hit too much rebar and uh, and destabilize your building. And so th- that's an issue as well. How do you get through that due diligence part of the process? It's a huge issue. And that's one of the reasons that people who are less familiar, we started, so by way of background, let me just, let me back up to explain why I'm acutely aware of that issue. Ground up construction didn't really make sense in Philadelphia 12 or 13 years ago. The construction costs exceeded the rent. So we started doing adaptive reuse. Then we switched to ground up development as things started to pencil better. So we started out renovating buildings. The answer is um, a lot of buildings have interior rebar that is either not where it's supposed to be or is overly dense or both. Like they didn't fully put in all the rebar according to the blueprints because, hey, no one was checking really in, in a lot of these cases. That's that's an issue. You need to use, I forgot what the machine is called, but you need to be able to figure out how to, where to put the plumbing stacks by using like a little precision type of jackhammer thing to make sure once you understand where the rebar is, not to destabilize it. It's not simple. And that's also why it's one of the reasons people say it's complicated. Well, once you understand that issue, it's not that complicated, but then you start to realize that there is a cost of these conversions to get them ready to be actually be buildable from a structural perspective, from finishing this, finishing it as though it were a buildable shell built out of the ground. It can be really simple or really hard to get a building to that point of just constructability. Yeah, we see the same thing. The other issue that we see in these building conversions is the building envelope the way you would design a building for office with either no opening windows or minimally opening windows, no balconies is not what you would do if you were designing a residential building. How do you manage that part so that there's still a desirable product at the end of the day? Sure. The good news is for balconies on the, just speaking to each part of your question, balconies are not, we don't actually, I don't know that we have any building. We have some units with terraces, but we don't actually have extruding balconies and we've never built a building. Mm. Can't think. No, we have one. Anyway, balconies aren't a huge deal on the East coast because you can actually only use them a couple months a year in the Northeast. So that's not the end of the world. If you're dealing with a building that is an existing curtain wall facade that is inoperable windows, you have to reclad the building. It's the only solution we've come up with. With a pre-war building, you can just put operable windows in and we've done all of those things. And, um, I generally prefer to reclad a building because often a, the, the odds of a facade being in good condition on an old building are pretty low. And so um, while it might seem simpler to just put operable windows in, 
it's rarely easier to do. I uh, would rather put a curtain wall facade with operable windows on a, a building that, because a lot of the buildings now that you see that can be converted aren't from the pre-war era. A lot of that's either been converted or is actually still pretty successful as office because it's people like it, it's well-maintained. It's 60s, 70s, and 80s buildings, which generally don't have savable facades. So we're, we're really not relying on much, if anything, of the existing elements of a building besides the core structural members when we're doing a conversion today. And that's why a lot of conversions don't work, especially because a lot of people try to do things like save a two-pipe HVAC system or save, um, you know, work with the existing base building electrical, which is, of course, almost always insufficient, et cetera. That's just like a recipe for disaster. We've seen people finish those things and they're, they look like they're purpose-built Class C apartments in a lot of cases. <laughs> That's a good characterization. I love that. So, obviously, these someone's taking a huge haircut on these assets. They're probably distressed. Are you dealing with a seller pre foreclosure? Are you dealing with a bondholder? Who are you negotiating with on the other side of the table? And what's that price discovery process look like? Sure. So, um, <clears throat> It's in, it's interesting. Post GFC, rise of alternative lenders who are effect, you know effectively who are effectively balance sheet lenders that can resolve a loan themselves. That's generally who we're dealing with now. They're generally pretty. They're astute real estate people in that they know they're a lender and they know they don't want to own the building. So typically, they've got a deed tendered and they've not foreclosed. Foreclosure is something that's only happening in contentious situations because typically today borrowers who know their equity is uh, you know severely impaired or negative are happy to cooperate with a lender to just minimize coming out of pocket even for transfer taxes so we haven't encountered any reo um, that i can think of at all really maybe just suburban special servicer stuff so so talking about you know what we're looking for is you know two to three hundred thousand feet minimally existing downtown office so not a lot of that is, and and 500 is better or more, not a lot of that has been financed in conduit or REMIC trusts in the United States. It's been financed in by balance sheet-esque lenders. Typically, those loans were transitional when they began, and they became more transitional, or they became less performing instead of more performing over time. So luckily, the lenders are in a position to resolve them quickly by virtue of decision-making the issue is that the only things that are transacting now are things where there's not a deep impairment. So the transaction structure that works right now is the lender finances 100% of your purchase price by reinstating the existing loan. You, the old borrower goes away, the new borrower puts in reserves, and there's got to be a path before the new borrower or the buyer comes in where they can have the parts of the building vacant. They need to be vacant by the time we need to start construction. It's all it's all pretty intuitive, but it's all really hard to bring together. That that makes a lot of sense. Now, you're going to be doing a fair bit of construction. That's going to be a sizable investment. That lender presumably wants to retain their first lien position on the property, and you're not going to want to be at I don't know thirty percent loan to cost at the end of the day because the the cost of the structure is got to be no more than thirty percent of your total cost. So you still have to put in the majority of the money. Mm -hmm. That's right. So what's interesting is that let's just start by saying 100% of the ways that we're getting these opportunities sourced is 
The lenders that are taking these office buildings back have financed us before in either transitional or pure development. So they're calling us because they know we can execute. Unfortunately, with the state of real estate finance, certainly in the US, if not the whole world, is they can't make a construction loan now. The great news is we don't need a construction loan now. We need it because we're buying, typically when you're buying in these situations and the seller, you're buying something that has buy right multifamily zoning and there's a path to vacancy within say two years, and you're getting very advantageous seller financing terms, the flip side is you have to close in 60 days. So that's not even remotely enough time typically to hire a architect for a major project, let alone you can basically put an RFP together to hire the architect in that time. It takes at least a year to get construction drawings to the point where you can bid them. So um, typically the lender, the lenders are looking to provide the construction loan when you need it in the future, but they're also happy to be paid off as well. So this is a relatively new phenomenon. I'd say this has been going on for only a few months as lenders gain clarity into possible, into, into the, into, in price discovery. Well, this is fascinating. I'd love to continue to watch your journey. We definitely want to keep in touch on this because we're looking at a lot of the same things. If folks want to connect, if they want to learn more, what's the best way? Um, our website is post, P-O-S-T-C-R-E, like commercialrealestate.com. And my email is matt at postcre.com. Feel free to reach out. Love it. Well, Matt, love the perspective. And for the listeners at home, definitely connect with Matt Pastronk at postcre.com. The link will be in the show notes. And in the meantime, have an awesome rest of your weekend. Go make some great things happen. We'll talk to you again tomorrow.